Hello and welcome to The Bunker USA. I am your host, Alex Andreu. The Biden administration seems more interested in woke fantasies than the hard reality Americans face every day. Most Americans simply want to live their lives in freedom and peace, but we are under attack in a left-wing culture war we didn't start and never wanted to fight. This was Sarah Huckabee Sanders delivering the Republicans' response to Biden's State of the Union address. Is it a fair review? My guest today is an associate professor of politics and international relations at UCL and the co-director of the UCL Center on U.S. Politics, as well as the author of several books and a regular contributor to The Hill. Welcome to The Bunker, or welcome back to The Bunker, I should say, Julie Norman. Thank you. Always a pleasure to be here. Julie, Biden seemed to mention bipartisanship many times, asking Congress to behave in a responsible way so they could finish the job. He used that phrase maybe a dozen times in his address. You recently wrote that his biggest weakness is trying to be a voice of moderation on the one hand and a progressive trailblazer on the other. Did he win you over? Did he manage to square that circle for you? Well, I think he took a different tack in this speech, and I think he's playing to the current reality of a divided government and having Republicans control the House. And because of that, we see Biden leaning back into some of his uh, more earlier campaign messaging, this idea of reaching across the aisle, having bipartisan legislation, um, focusing on policies that appeal to you know a lot of blue-collar workers. And what we, we didn't hear him leaning into um, some of the more social justice issues, things that maybe he had emphasized a bit more in the first two years, largely because of the Democratic majority that uh, the Democrats had there and some of the issues that people in his his party were pushing for. So I think he, he knows the political reality and he knows what might be possible in these next two years. And I think also knows what's probably going to start winning over independence as he looks ahead to 2024. Mm. Speaker Kevin McCarthy eventual Speaker Kevin McCarthy, had warned his members against breaches of decorum beforehand. But there was just an enormous amount of heckling and jeering. Marjorie Taylor Greene howling liar from the benches. Biden seemed to relish it, dealt with it like a pro. It sort of woke him up and energized him, if anything. Are these addresses usually this rowdy? It's so interesting because they're not, right? I mean, we, we usually have um, very calm kind of rules of order in the U.S. Congress. It's not like the House of Commons in the U.K., for example, where some of the, the jeering and whatnot is a bit more common. Though I, I do think the liar phrase is very rare in the U.K., with that said. So that is different. I will say, though, Biden certainly seemed to expect it, and McCarthy seemed to expect it to some degree as well. And it was interesting seeing McCarthy trying to very subtly shush his party from from behind but but the real person who had to deal with it was Biden and he did that very well um you know with with quips with a almost a back and forth banter sometimes and almost i think lightened the spirit that could have become quite acrimonious yes he was yeah he was like a sort of stand up dealing with hecklers indeed yeah and, and some i will say some of his quips i'm not sure exactly what he meant by them but he seemed quite comfortable <laughs> just with the back and forth and so i think that actually worked in his favor and kind of put republicans on the back foot as looking just rather silly rather than more than anything else yeah the, the, kurt bardella a commentator agrees with you and said that basically these 
tantrums ended up being the perfect visual aid that on one side you have adults and on the other side you have children. Exactly, yeah. Is it likely that the more facts turn against them, the more Republicans will reach for this sort of fog of chaos as their only hope to cover things up? Yeah, well, obviously some in the party are already seeing that. And I think that's why we saw McCarthy uh, trying to, to keep everyone under control. And so the, the party itself, I think, has that splinter wing that is going to lean into being disruptive, um, being a bit louder in that way. And in some ways that appeals to um, some of the, the more populist fervor in the United States in the sense of this should be more open and passionate and uh, kind of bringing out some of these, uh, you know, kind of bringing people down to earth in a way. But I think that has its limits. And I think Mm. the party is at this interesting inflection point where it can either lean into um, the more nasty side of that, that I think we saw unleashed under Trump, or can pivot out of it. And again, bring it in for maybe some, again, banter, uh, that kind of thing at times, but to, to keep it under control, because there was a sense that the American public, at least in the midterms, had had maybe had a limit with that and wanted things at least somewhat normal, somewhat professional again. Mm. Uh, Huckabee Sanders' response was written plainly without the benefit of knowing what Biden was going to say. Yes. Who, who concentrated on a pretty solid economic strategy, foreign policy, a lot of foreign policy in there, barely referenced the Republican sort of hot-button issues. Mm-hmm. How have the two speeches been received? Have we seen any opinion from people who matter? Have we seen any polling? Yeah, I did see one um, flash poll from from CNN that more than seven in 10 respondents thought Biden's speech was, uh, they gave it a positive or very positive rating and you're on 30%, you're know, seeing it as, as more negative. But uh, for Biden, that's very good. I would note CNN obviously leans more left. So I think that poll, we should take those numbers you know, with some of that in mind. But with that said, even among Democrats, uh, Biden's speeches don't always go over that well, much less independence or anyone else. <laughs> and and, and, and the, the coverage the day after, you know, the response from the White House, I think was very positive for Biden. He did hit the stride, I think, with um, with style. He came out with um, a bit more vigor and, like we said, uh, you know, kind of um, punching back than he has in some others. And and I think hit the note he needed to, substance-wise as well. For Huckabee Sanders, yeah, I mean, it was very clear that, and, and, and I don't envy her position in some ways when you need to write the speech before hearing mm, the other speech, mm. but, you know, she really leaned into what are the the big issues for the right that are galvanizing, which Biden just, as you noted, completely steered away from. And I think wisely, the less that he engages with some of those more hot button debates that become very divisive very quickly, the better it is for him. And and again, I think he's under less pressure to do that with this current Congress. Mm. Is there, do you think, something more strategic here, more of a design, where basically we get a sense that if Trump stands again, it will be a gutter battle. And if he doesn't, the process of getting rid of him will be a gutter battle. So there is no point in the GOP even attempting to go high, as it were. Yeah, it's an interesting point. I mean, I do think that there is a window that's kind of cracked open right now for the GOP to move in a different direction. And I think the midterms did that, where I don't think Trump did as badly as some portray him to. Many of his candidates actually did very well, but his big candidates 
lost. You know, probably the the biggest winner that night was uh, Ron DeSantis, who's a rising mm. star in the Republican Party. And so there is this sense that there's uh, there's an opportunity for the party to go somewhere different than just being under this very fierce lockhold of Trump. And uh, so I, I think we'll see some of that. But again, he is in the race. He still has a lot of support, not as much as he used to, but still over 50%. And it's a very big question of what will happen if he's not a clear winner in the primaries. Will he go uh, go softly into the night or will he mm. form a third party or, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, will be a fine things? thing. <laughs> yeah. So it's just, um, he's, he's still so much a wild card, but I think the party needs to take a chance on moving to a different person in a different style from him, even if it's you know, still not someone Democrats would uh, would find uh, palatable, but, but someone who is not Trump. I'm interested in Ron DeSantis, seen by many as the most likely Trump rival. He has gone just exceptionally quiet since winning that race. Trump is going all out to provoke him. I, I saw something in the last couple of days where he suggested DeSantis had groomed teenage girls with alcohol when he was a teacher. And DeSantis is just not engaging at all. We hear from his camp that he's very close to a decision. What's your feeling? How, how will this shake out? Yeah. So I think DeSantis and anyone who is thinking of running against Trump, but especially DeSantis as the biggest rival, is is wise to not engage with Trump and not to to sing to that level, to not play these games and to to keep those you know, usually false narratives out of the headlines. So I think he's playing it right. Once, if or, or when he declares he's running, he'll probably need to deal with them a little bit more then. But it's in his advantage right now to lay low, um, let those things just fizzle on, uh, you know, Trump's uh, socials and, and that kind of thing. My guess is that we we should expect a DeSantis run. I mean, in all the polls, he is the candidate who uh, has the best chance against Trump. He has a lot of momentum right now. He has a lot of Republican donors looking to support him, a lot of conservative media looking to support him. So uh, if if one's looking for the political moment to do something, this is a, quite a right moment for DeSantis. Yeah, you talk about conservative media, and, and that reminded me of something I read that Matthew Gertz said. He described Huckabee Sanders' reply as indistinguishable from a Fox News monologue. And I just wonder, have the Republicans become so predictable that they're now quite easy to bait and made to look a little bit unhinged? Is that emerging as a strategy on the on the Democratic side? I think to a point, I will say, um, as much as Huckabee Sanders' points were, were kind of irrelevant to Biden's speech, those issues do matter to a lot of Americans kind of across the spectrum. And I do think it's one area where the left is maybe... Um, a little bit tone deaf as to how some of their own messaging resonates more among mm, moderates mm. and independents on those issues. So I think sometimes the left is overly dismissive of how how powerful those those issues and, uh, and narratives can be. Um, it's unfortunate that they get so divided and so politicized when when many of these issues affect like many real people. But I do think it's something for the left to be aware of and conservative media as well. I think you know again they they know what is is popular. Those issues usually get a lot of traction, especially with some of their key hosts like Tucker Carlson. But at the end of the day, there's you know a lot of other issues that are that are going to be coming to the fore as we get closer to 2024.
Professor Alan Lichtman, who has a knack, as I'm sure you'll know, for predicting presidential races, he's got everyone right, I think, uh, since 1982, using a system of 13 trends. He says that the, the incumbency is a huge advantage because it avoids an internal party battle, basically. Are we any closer to knowing whether Biden will go for a second term? Some analysts reckon there were a few clues in his address. Yeah, I mean, all all signs point to yes right now. I think we can almost see, you know, this uh, State of the Union as a sort of mini launching and, and a sort of a set piece for what the campaign will probably look like. I've heard that he will likely announce something in the coming you know, months or weeks. And I don't think that he would be challenged by a Democrat in the primaries if he chooses to run again. I agree. That would be quite unthinkable, I think. In the yeah, government. I think if the midterms had gone differently, even if he chose to run again, someone would maybe try and challenge him. But um, but but seeing how he's how he's done, um, even though his popularity is still not that great, there's really there's no one who I think could uh, could challenge him effectively if he chose to run again, which I assume that he will. Yeah, I mean, he got a real sort of mini bump in the approval ratings from the whole Chinese balloon caper. It just <laughs> seemed to play very well for him. I, I've heard some even hostile commentators on network news say he played a blinder. What, what's the story there? Yeah, I mean the the balloon incident was interesting. I mean, I, I think I think that was something that could have hurt him. I do think that you know many were looking to politicize that. I think it was a tough one for the administration to call. There were many who thought they should have um, shot down the balloon sooner than they did, as soon as they cited it, what have you. I think the administration can make a good case for for why they waited and that they canceled Blinken's visit. So I I think that will quite literally like blow over um, to some degree. But, um, <laughs> but it, I do love you, Julia. <laughs> oh, God. Balloon puns have just been uh, been unstoppable this week. But, um, but yes, I don't think that will be on like voters' minds moving forward. But I do think it was um, an interesting incident to have right before the State of the Union. Again, he got some flack. People who are looking to criticize will certainly find criticism. But I think others saw that as a somewhat measured response, saw him as leaning into a more tough on China approach overall mm. for people who are watching this. And I will know, I mean, the polls have just been all over. Like a, a week or two ago, uh, you know, I think it was uh, in the, the like a, a third of Americans wanted to see Biden run again. And it was even the majority of Democrats didn't want him to. But um, but now that's up over 50 percent of Democrats. So it has swung very quickly. Um, and, and, you know, some of that's what's happening internationally, but a lot just domestically as well as people feel a bit more confident with jobs, with the economy and some of those kind of indicators. Mm. Now, now, if Biden doesn't end up running, who are the likely runners and riders for the Democratic nomination? And and are any of them agitating slightly more openly for him not to run? Yeah, so I would say most potential contenders have been relatively quiet, I think, assuming that Biden will run. You know, Kamala Harris, the current vice president, is someone who I think initially people thought would be Biden's likely successor. Um, unfortunately, she uh, her poll ratings have been even lower than Biden's. I think she would you know struggle to kind of rebrand to be a powerful candidate by by twenty twenty four. 
Um, other names that are sometimes offered is Pete Buttigieg, um, currently transportation secretary, who had a very good kind of opening run uh, back uh, back two years ago. Other names that are floated are some of the current governors, Gretchen Whitmer in Michigan, mm. um, and also some recently elected or reelected senators, such as Raphael Warnock in Georgia. So really all over the map, I would say it would be a very wide open field, which could be exciting, but also, you know, runs the risk of uh, the party kind of tearing itself apart over in an open primary, which is one reason why some, um, I think, still at the end of the day, you know, put their uh, put their money on Biden, even despite his age and despite some of the reservations. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I couldn't let you go without venturing into some of the more salacious <laughs> um, <laughs> stories that are currently going on. Um, Go Trump's one-time lawyer, Michael Cohen, was interviewed by New York prosecutors this week for the 15th time, and he reckons an indictment over the Stormy Daniels affair is imminent. Is this likely to be an important setback, or does it actually bolster Trump to the faithful? Or does it become a danger that that if the only indictment that shakes out of this legal swirl that he's in is the Stormy Daniels affair, it, it just makes it all look rather trivial? Yeah, I think more the latter. I mean, Trump has been embroiled in so many different legal challenges that um, it's almost like diluted the emphasis of any single one just because they're all kind of swirling. In most of the cases, it is, you know, allies of his, people like Cohen and others who are really in the limelight that he himself has evaded, at least up till now, any, you know, kinds of uh, like prosecution or, or what have you. And even within that, again, to his base, he is very savvy about spinning this as the big state using this witch hunt against me. You know, the state will do this against you if you aren't careful. I mean, he he just plays this to his narrative. So even if it was something that pegged him more directly, um, he's been very politically savvy in how he kind of takes that and bounces it in a way that's to his advantage. Okay. Now, George Santos. <laughs> A bin fire I have been watching, (laughs) just utterly mesmerized. I am obsessed with that story. (laughs) Nick LaLotta, a a fellow Republican New York congressman, added his voice to the growing chorus of people telling him to resign, calling him a sociopath. Is he toast? You know, I'm I'm amazed how much he's... um kept his head above water. And uh, some may have seen that um, he took some strong words from Mitt Romney at the State of the Union for um, positioning himself in a kind of uh, highly visible spot instead of kind of (laughs) hiding in the shadows where many think he should be. So I do think there's starting to be some more vocalizations from within the party, you know, to not have this fly and and to to try and have some kind of accountability. But with that said, you know, the Republican margin in the House is so small that I think the leadership is hesitant to to oust mm. him too readily if they don't uh, automatically have a Republican to take that seat. And they're just it's just such a weird situation. They're not quite sure how to handle this. Just to wrap things up, let's, let's return to slightly more salient uh, <laughs> matters. Uh, Congress seems to be heading into another all-too-familiar deadlock over raising the debt ceiling. When will it come to a head? And and does the fallout risk threatening fragile economic recovery? 
Yeah, I mean the the debt ceiling um, de- debates and, and and coming to these cliffs with it are are always extremely dangerous for both the national and international economy. And unfortunately, we've seen it over and over again for the past decade. You know, going back to the Obama years and then uh, really coming quite close to it just a year or two ago. So I I think there's a little bit of a um, at least for for some a sense of complacency that like well. They always eventually kind of work it out. And I, I myself am just assuming that this time that wiser heads will prevail and they will ultimately negotiate. But there's a lot of grandstanding um, going into that kind of negotiation, especially as we mm. see right now with with both trying to look tough and standing up to the other. I mean, there are certain measures that Treasury has put in place to keep things humming along for a bit longer. From estimates that I've seen, it's probably later in the spring, early summer, like June, that things would really come to a head, but right, you right. really don't want to push it to that point. I mean, this is really playing with fire. And, um, you know, I think now that State of the Union is out of the way, Biden has on record that Republicans are not going to slash, you know, some of the, um, you know, Medicare and, and, and Social Security stuff. They need to really start talking about what they're going to do and, and some you know, responsible budget cuts that might be part of that. Dr. Julie Norman, thank you so much for your brilliant insight and your exceptional puns. <laughs> this is why you've this is why you fit right in um, with this podcast. Thank you. Thank you. It's not just hot air anymore. So thank you. Always a pleasure. <laughs> Overinflated. <laughs> Remember, there's a new bunker pretty much every day. So if you like our work, you can support our work on the funding platform Patreon for as little as £3 a month. Just search for Bunker Podcast Patreon. I leave you with these words from Biden's address. We're often told that Democrats and Republicans can't work together. But over the past two years, we've proved the cynics and the naysayers wrong. To my Republican friends, if we could work together in the last Congress, there is no reason we can't work together and find consensus on important things in this Congress as well. Is that genuine positivity, naive optimism, or shrewd positioning? With Biden, it is occasionally all three. The eyes of the world begin to turn to the states again for the four-yearly battle. This is Alex Andreu in the bunker saying over and out. Good news, your favourite history nerds are back. Yes, we at We Are History have been trawling the history shelves of our local bookshops. Well, I have, John. You mostly went round finding your books and moving them to the front of the displays. If I can find them, it's a bonus. We are ready to tell you all about what we've learned, from the revolting French to some revolting women. Via some Brits abroad and a foul-mouthed Irishman. So, download We Are History. Our laughable attempt at a silly history podcast. With me, John O'Farrell and me, Angela Barnes. Wherever you get your podcasts. The Bunker USA was presented by Alex Andreu. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis with artwork by James Parrott. The audio producer was me, Jay Bailey, and our group editor is Andrew Harrison. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.